This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design here at the University of Pennsylvania. On today's show, I'm speaking with eight semifinalist teams, all competing in our Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge, which is a student entrepreneurship competition that culminates next week. On, on Friday. So I'm joined now in the studio by Braden Feinberg, who's the co-founder and CEO of Flourish Change. Braden, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Paul. All right, give me the elevator pitch for Flourish Change. So effectively, nonprofits have a really hard time predicting cash flows. The donations are super lumpy, churns about 99% annually. And so it's really hard for them to understand what's going to happen tomorrow to have confidence in their financial future. So ultimately, what we've been able to do is we've linked donations to behavior through a series of micro-donations using rule-based Roundup technology. Um, Roundup is where a donor can say, when I swipe at Starbucks, give, 50, give the Delta 50 cents for my 350 latte um, to the cause I care about. Rule-based would say something along the lines of, if I spend $100 at a restaurant, give $5. And so what this does is we're able to then model behavior and give nonprofits confidence in their financial future because it's pretty easy to understand when uh, somebody's going to get their coffee in the mornings. All right. There's like 100 moving parts here. So, so what part of this do you guys do? So we focus on the processing and analytics. Okay. So we have a donor-facing platform, consumer-facing, that individuals can download on a mobile phone. It's an mm-hmm. app. Um, and they link their credit cards. And we will set up rules and roundups based on their preferences okay, and process so those, these donations. So those are existing mechanisms, techniques that have been pioneered by a bunch of other people. You implement that exactly. in, in a consumer-facing app. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. And then we turn around and flip the information and a whole bunch of analytics to these organizations yeah. so that they can then understand, do, does it make sense to make this higher now or should we wait a couple of months? Does this make sense to expand or not? Should we mm-hmm. launch the new program mm-hmm. based on their existing donors and have confidence in that decision? Mm-hmm. So let's drill down one one layer and describe for me what a. Actually, I should have asked where where are you in the process? So do you are you, are you do you have a product yet or? Yeah, so okay. we're about fourteen months in. We've mm-hmm. got uh, we launched publicly in the last quarter of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, we've uh, picked up about forty active paying clients. Mm-hmm. Um, we're growing tens of percents month over month. Um, we doubled the first quarter again. And so, yeah, I mean, we've got an active product in the market and people are using it and nonprofits are enjoying it. Okay. So give us a sense. I don't know if, if, if it's to your advantage to tell us who one of your clients is, but just give us a sense of what of a, what kind of client this would be and so we can get a feel for, for it. So. Sure. So they tend to be non-endowed organizations. Mm-hmm. So um, often these are organizations that do less than about $5 million in annual operating. Mm-hmm. They uh, tend to have some sort of large gifts that cover some of their fixed right. costs. So large, high net worths pledging right. some amount to cover a payroll, things like that. Um, but the majority of their donations come 
are less than $1,000 and yeah. come from a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, these organizations range from uh, one of our clients does about $150,000 in annual operating. Another one does $2.5 million. Yeah. So it really varies in kind of yeah. sc- size and scope based on who needs what. Yeah, but they're, on average, these tend to be smallish organizations. Yeah, so I don't know, Philadelphia Bicycle Coalition of Philadelphia, right? Somebody like yeah. that would be a small nonprofit that relies on small donations, in this case from cyclists. So on the on the consumer side, what does the app look like? It only has will it only have one target organization or will it might I have a bunch of target organizations on my on my app? So the donor can go in and select any of our signed organizations, and we actually pull the IRS's database of over 1.4 million organizations. So essentially any organization. Exactly. Yeah. So you'll give money to somebody who isn't even paying you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so from our perspective, it's a great customer acquisition pipeline. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so, so a donor can go in. There are ways Why can't to, you? You should just hold the money hostage. Say, we'll release it to you if – no, I'm kidding. Yeah. It's uh, – at the end of the day, we're trying to work with these clients yeah. to make yeah. sure that they have confidence in their future. And right. so – while there are interesting scenarios like yeah. that, we're, we're on their side. Yeah. Plus, you can't really represent that to your customer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, the donor believes they're giving to an organization, right. and it's our responsibility to make sure that happens. Okay. So I could select some charities. Bicycle Coalition, I could also put in a national partners in health yeah. or something like Fill that. Fill abundance, anything. Fill abundance. Okay. And then when I go into Starbucks, how does it actually work? It's passive. So oh, once, it's you passive. Set, once you once set you it up. Once you set the rules. Exactly. It's so done. it sits between... St- the Starbucks app, or where does it sit on my? It sits between your. It sits on your bank essentially. So what we're able to do is a client would sign in to their financial institution, yeah. so to Wells Fargo, to right. Citibank, right. whatever it is. Um, and once an hour, we get asked a question: Are there any new transactions? Uh, and we see that information. We forget it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, all we do is go through and see that three fifty charge at right. Starbucks done. Right. And it, it ha- we store fifty cents. And when that, when we decide to then give to this organization, we swipe fifty cents out of the account and hand it over to the nonprofit. Okay, so the roundup is purely a cognitive fiction because there are actually two transactions, right? Yes. Okay, it's three fifty and fifty. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, look, we 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 live and die by cognitive fiction, so it's it's fine. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's 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 the pinch point. If if we were if we were walking up to every company to to try to get access to their POS system, it's going to be right thousands and thousands of man hours to get a fraction of the of the companies in the, yeah. in the country. So it's easier to go after the couple of big banks. So basically what I have to share with you, I have to share my login credentials for my bank, basically. Yeah. So you don't actually share that with us at all. Yeah. You're logging in directly to Wells Fargo. We okay. don't ever see any of that information. It's never stored. It's never yeah. kept. All we're able to do is ask a question. That's it. That's the only thing you're allowing us to see. Um, and so all that information is is fully PCI compliant, which is the standard financial security. All right. That I, I'm lost just a little bit. That ask a question function, is that enabled by a feature on the banking yeah, system? Exactly. Okay. So that's an existing feature. Exactly. Okay. Got it. So it's it's they have a framework that we can build on top of, and mm-hmm. we've taken that framework and yep. expanded it yep. and met and, and allowed it to meet our needs. Exactly. Right. Very cool. So what's the origin story? Where did this come from? So um, a buddy of mine, we've been chatting on and off for, for about six months, and, and finally he sat me down and said, hey, I've got this idea, um, and pitched me a variation on this. He wanted to figure out how to use microfinance to look at um, 
kind of loan origination mm-hmm. and how you can use it to kind of pay back loans, stuff like that, um, kind of minimize debt burden on, on a piece of the country and then potentially globally. Uh, and at 22 years old with no banking experience, I had no scope to in any way even approach that problem. And we realized it was kind of out of our out of our control. Um, but we liked the general concept and we looked to see where we could redirect to. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, the nonprofit market's about four and ten billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, really, really big um, mm-hmm. in terms of scale. There are very few markets that size. And when we started looking around, there isn't a ton of stuff there. It's it's often looked over because um, I think a lot of times people will look at it and say it's nonprofits. They have no operating capital. They can't afford to pay me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you start looking at the they nonprofits, often spend forty percent on operating. So you're still looking at a kind of 180 plus billion dollar annual operating budget right. market annually. Um, we said there's room to play. Mm-hmm. So let's see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And we went out and talked to 300 organizations and tried to find their pain points. And ultimately, it came down to predictability, reliability. Yeah, but you know, let me push on that because I, that's the way you made your pitch. But if you really think about it, it seems to me the hard part of this is acquiring the the individual consumer, not the not the not the nonprofit and and the individual consumer doesn't care about that benefit. So why did you choose to position it as about smoothing payments to nonprofits? For a couple of reasons. We think it's the kind of pinch point that gets us in the door, um, mm-hmm. as well as it's a pain point that every single one of them experience. Now, organizations like the Red Cross, the, the really, really big giants, um, raise hundreds of millions, if not sure. billions annually. Yeah. They've got massive endowments, and so they're never worried about their next dollar. Uh, but there are about 850, almost 900,000 organizations that do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we started looking at kind of what these 900,000 have are similar and how, how they're kind of grouped, uh, it comes down to really feeling confident that they can meet their next payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while there are features on the market and things like that that are, hey, like, let me spin up a website to, to make fundraising easy, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was really trying to tackle the problem of confidence in the future. They were all trying to grow the market. Um, make it easier to bring in more money, but with a 99% churn, bringing in one more donor doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have any more confidence. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to go back to the kind of core fundamentals of how do we make sure, how do we grow the CLV of each donor, the customer lifetime value, as opposed to how do we um, kind of bring in that one additional person. Mm-hmm. But it, but am I right in my conjecture that it's that the hard part of this in terms of growing the market is acquiring the 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 donor some and so we found that organizations like Phil Abundance food banks mm-hmm. uh, high volunteer high pinch point where there's a whole bunch of people in one room tend to be easier absolutely yeah. Yeah. Um, the other extreme is we've never seen an organization before so somebody came on uh-huh. added it and started telling their friends about it wow and so those are kind of the two extremes that yeah. we found success but anywhere in the middle where you have an organization that doesn't have a pinch point with all their donors, may have a gala, but doesn't want to ask when they're asked, doesn't want to ask to push flourish when they're pushing thousand dollar gifts um, is where we seem to struggle a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, Braden, tell us a little bit about about your background, what you're studying and how this fits into 
to your plans? Sure. So uh, I'm a systems engineering undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a data science master's. I have uh, lived upstairs in the in the OID marketing department for about four years. Oh, well, upstairs, you're referring to we're in Huntsman Hall, so one of the Wharton departments, the one I happen to sit in. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And so so I was I, I really like to try to understand and ask the question of, of why people behave the way they do or mm-hmm. how they act in certain mm-hmm. ways, and, and ultimately, can you model and predict that? Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, I like to think about financial situations because they tend to be thought out as mm-hmm. opposed to less impulsive. Um, and so because of that, uh, we started looking at kind of the financial services, financial analytics domains, and this fits very nicely in that little realm. And so what what's the plan going forward? So win, win or lose next week, what's the plan going forward? So we've raised a good chunk of cash in the last. Uh, we we closed a small angel round last June. Uh-huh. Um, we're in the middle of a seed raise now. Yeah, um, it's going well, and and we're enjoying it. Okay, so your guys are all in doing this. Yeah, it's full time. Yeah. My business partner graduated uh, last May. Yeah, um, and he has been full time for eight months, growing our base and and uh, growing the business. Great. So tell our listeners how they can find you. So they can find us at flourishchange.com. Okay. Um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Flourish Change. And what's the app called? Uh, Flourish Change. All right. Flourish Change. Remember that. All right. Brayden, thanks so much for coming in. Super interesting. Thanks, Carl. And good luck next week. Thank you. All right. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Today we're talking to eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge. And I'm joined now in the studio by our last guest, Keenan Sully, who's the CEO at Halo. Keenan, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right, give us the elevator pitch for Halo. So what we do at Halo is we attach LED monitors to the roof of Uber and Lyft cars, and we use them to show creative, captivating advertisements that are targeted to the specific location of the driver. And the idea is, you know, we pay the drivers for having the monitors on top of their car, and then advertisers can work with us such that they can target their ads to specific locations at specific times and even, you know, days of the week so that we're always showing the right ad to the right consumer. All right. So give us a sense, because uh, it'll guide my questions a little bit. Give, give me a sense of where you are in the process. Yeah. Yeah, so we went live about a month ago. We have a small fleet of drivers in Philadelphia. We're working with a few local advertisers, um, Saxby's, Insomnia Cookies, Avrani, which is actually another startup in the competition. They were on the show. A yeah, earlier. exactly. Yeah. So we're working with them as well. Um, a few larger brands that we're in talks with right now that I think we'll start. We have um, our, our first two, uh, you know, non-pen related customers, Fairfield Inn and what, Libertine Restaurant, which is a restaurant in Center City. Um, and so that's the plan. I mean, going forward, we're going to keep adding more advertisers as well as growing the base here in Philly as well as some adjacent cities. All right. So tell us a little bit more about the device itself and what the experience is like. So. Uh, what does it look like? How's it going in the car? How big is it? That sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the monitor itself is about three feet wide by one feet tall. It attaches to the, the vehicle via car racks. So the same way that you would attach a bike to the roof of your car, we put the racks on and then this attaches directly to the racks. And the way it actually works is we made a mobile app that communicates with the with the monitor itself. So for our drivers, they log in, they open the app. The app will automatically figure out and download the correct ads as well as send it to the monitor uh, over Wi-Fi. So drivers, they don't, they don't, they're very hands-off. They just start driving. They do their normal routes as normally, and then the tech between the phone as well as the monitor takes care of everything. And the the monitor does the monitor have the data preloaded, and so the app is just saying show show ad four. No, or- so the phone will actually download the 
correct ad basically from our servers. Oh, at, and then in real time. In real I, time. And yeah. they'll send it and it'll update it as much as needed. Yeah. So give me the use case or, or walk through the scenario where the location matters. Uh, I mean, Philadelphia, yes, matters. Yep. But are you saying right when you're across from Saxby's, you're showing the Saxby's ad? Walk us through how that works. So there's, yeah. a, there's a few use cases. One is like you're touching on. Imagine you're Saxby's and uh, you want to say, my customers are only people that are within a mile radius from the stores. And we constrain your ads so that they're only on cars, maybe a mile, two mile, but some radius from all of your stores. There's also some where people know where their consumers live. So the classic example we live is imagine or imagine it's a luxury clothing brand or makeup mm-hmm. brand, and they know that all of our customers live in these higher income areas, mm-hmm. this specific neighborhood. So mm-hmm. we only want to show ads in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the value prop in that you're not wasting. If, if you put a billboard on the highway, every single car right. sees it, even if you know they're not going to respond. Right. The idea is you're only showing it to people that are likely to respond to it and then take action. And and how is the how is the service priced to advertisers? So it's sold per hour. And you can buy a package where you're guaranteed a certain number of hours per day. So I could say I want a few hours, let's say, in Center City. I'm going to buy two hours per day. Every single day I'm guaranteed that my ads will be shown there. Two hours. And you can change it. You can go up or down depending on how much you think you need. And on a per-hour basis is where it's sold. So, and, and when you say an hour, that means literally the time my ad is being shown. Exactly. Okay. So it's not constrained. It's not about one car. It right. could be because cars are coming in and out all right. the time. And it could. It's more about the total amount of time total shown. Amount, total amount of time shown. Um, all right. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, Keenan, about, about uh, your background. And what you're studying, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, I'm studying management. I'm a senior here in, in Wharton uh, with minors in computer science as well as biology. Uh, I grew up in, in Wisconsin. And um, in terms of for, for Halo, how, how we kind of got into it was one day we were just sitting around. We were, we were all friends. It's me and three other co-founders, Nabil, Ryan, and, and Faizan. Let me shout them out really quickly. Yeah. But we were just sitting around. We got a really... One of those Facebook ads that are just really well-targeted, where you see it and you're like, wow, I was just thinking about that yesterday. And then we, we just realized, wow, these have become so good at finding the right ad for you. Mm-hmm. And we saw things like billboards, which were just com- very uninspiring, and they were just really bad. And we thought there has to be an opportunity here. That the online ads, there's so much data. There's all these really sophisticated techniques. And then the offline world, you don't see any of that. And we wanted to bridge this gap. And and the idea we were talking about, uh, kind of brainstorming a bunch of ideas. And the idea itself, putting ads on top of cars, is not really new. You see that on yellow cab taxis in New York or even in Philly for, for a while. And the idea is now there's all these really big networks of Uber and Lyft drivers in every single city. And if it works for them, you know, we can do it there and we can do it better by making them digital, show videos instead of just static ads and make them more creative and captivating. Yeah, so that's, that's super interesting. I mean, t- tell me a little bit about um, you mentioned competitors and that others had, had done this. Um, presumably, there have been a few others who have tried something quite similar, whether it's in-vehicle or on-vehicle. I've seen one in San Francisco right. uses windows of the vehicle. What what? How deliberately did you look at competitors and learn from them? So, we're very, yeah, we know about all the competitors. Before we started, we obviously looked. We wanted to see. We thought it was a great idea. And we wanted to see mm-hmm. how other people tried it, like, you know, what, what exactly happened. And we saw that there's a, there are some competitors in the West Coast which are having success. Um, you're, the ones you're referring to, they're, they're both constrained. They're both in San Francisco, and some yep. have in LA. And our thought is, you know, we think this is this is a great idea. We think we can we can run with it in the East Coast or some of the places where our competitors are not. And there, you know, we think of it as as 99% of drivers or most cities in the world 
don't know about about anyone. So if we can, you know, go there and expand it to those cities, then we're going to be very happy with that. Yeah. What um, what's in it for the driver? How do, how do you do the revenue share? The drive. So the number of hours that that they drive, they get paid on a per hour basis, uh-huh. just for doing the same exact thing and having it on top of their car. So they are there. I think I read somewhere the average Uber driver is making yeah I don't know fifteen bucks an hour or something like that. Not even. So not a, even. A recent New York study showed that they're making below the minimum wage, and that's why they passed the number of regulations on the number of Uber drivers. But that was another thing that excited us about yeah. this business is that we're helping a lot of these drivers earn a more sustainable income. We actually help that. It's pretty substantial. Our average driver makes a little bit more than $400 per month, which on a, you know is often like a 30, somewhere between a 20 and 30% boost in income, which so is pretty it's, significant. it's a few bucks an hour. It's exactly. Like three, four bucks. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you yeah. do the math. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's not bad. That's pretty good. So I, w- I wonder about, I mean, at the end of the day, this is an ad business and, and the ad business is is sort of sliced and diced a lot of different ways. There are various people play different roles. Um, have you yet entered that world of brokerages and that sort of thing, or are you now selling direct, selling the advertising direct? We've been direct so yeah. far, um, mostly just for control and, and, and we at least to test it out and, and going forward. Um, down the road, we've explored a few partnerships where with some agencies or people with more of a distribution channel, uh, which I think could be very interesting. But for the moment, all of them are direct. We work directly with all the advertisers. And part of that is because, uh, I didn't mention this before, but we've also specialized not just in the distribution of our ads, but also in the development. So we really co-work with all of our advertisers, and we have our own team in-house that actually makes the content shown on our... What, what kind of display is it? Is it is it full resolution? Uh, not quite full resolution. Yeah. It's a little bit... It's not as quality is like HD, but at any distance, it looks fine. Looks pretty good. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. Um, LED, so you can do all sorts of videos, really interesting stuff. On yeah. There. Yeah. Very, very cool. So tell us a little bit about what you, I mean, I'm sure for this competition, you've had to think about this, if not for your own financing and so forth, but what are the adjacent opportunities here? Is this, are Uber and Lyft enough or of a story or is there some bigger story you can tell? Yeah. yeah, so first, I mean, there's 2 million Uber and Lyft drivers in the U.S. So there's a ton There's a ton of drivers, and that's only in the U.S. Where, you know, this is also something that could have, could succeed in international markets. And actually, when we first started, we weren't, we weren't hard stuck on Uber, Lyft drivers. It was for us, like, people with cars. Uh, it just happens that it works really well. It synergizes with drivers because they're already spending right. a lot of time. And it's also predictable where their routes are. So when we're signing up drivers, if we sign up an Uber driver, we have history on like okay they spent most of their time in center city philadelphia which is that works for us as opposed to to somewhere else uh so you know other any driver actually that that does that kind of time it, it'll make sense for them um some adjacent opportunities we, we've thought about i mean you, you talked in the beginning about putting ads in the back of the car as yeah. well as other that's another thing we've looked into also we really are excited about the idea of of becoming an ad kind of a creative house down the line and pioneering our own ad format where, you know, we spend a lot of our time making these really creative ads uh, and not just like our product is our ability to distribute these ads, but also like we're very good at, at making these really fun, interesting ads. Yeah. So you're just about to graduate from college. Yep. Uh, what are your plans? You're going to, you're going to go with this? That's correct. So yeah. uh, right after we graduate, we're, we're putting a house together, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. The dream. Yeah. The dream's going to start very soon. Yeah. And where will you be based? Will you stay in Philly? Uh, we're going to move to New York in a, in a few weeks. So yeah. right after we start yeah. and uh, really focus on getting that driver base yeah. out. How do your parents feel about this? My parents, I think they're, when I first told them, they had no idea. They were like, I don't know. 
my dad's response was like, don't they, like, I've seen that in New York already. So, so why, why are you doing it? And yeah. I was like, well, I'm, I, I don't think <laughs> so, but I think they're, they're super supportive. They're very excited. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned before the break, my, I have a son graduating from college, right. You know, with right. you in your class. And so it's always an anxiety for the parents is like, what is it? What is our child going to do? But yeah. yeah, I still don't think they get it to be, to be yeah. frank, but <laughs> hopefully soon, maybe they'll see one and then yeah. they'll understand. Wow. That's my son. Yeah. yeah I hope exactly. that, I hope that happens. All right. Well, Keenan, best of luck next week with the competition. Thank and congratulations. Thanks. All right. Uh, that just about does it for today's show. If you missed any of the last two two hours, then please check us out on demand on the SiriusXM app. And be sure to follow our channel on Twitter, at BizRadio132. To follow me, go to my website, ktulrich.com. That's K-T-U-L-R-I-C-H. Or follow me on Twitter, at ktulrich. I'd like to thank all the semifinals teams for participating on the show today. Good luck competing in the Startup Showcase on May 3rd. Thanks also to producer Dana Cash, engineer Jeff Simmons, and Taylor Durham, Associate Director of Communications at the Wharton School. And thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.